This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. From our offices overlooking New York's Riverside Park, this is the Commonweal Podcast. On this episode of the Commonweal Podcast, Commonweal contributing writer Paul Moses talks about U.S. immigration policy and migrant histories with Donald Kerwin. He's the director of the Center for Migration Studies. Our senior editor, Matthew Goodway, talks with Alan Jacobs about his new book, The Year of Our Lord, 1943, Christian Humanism in an Age of Crisis. Assistant editor and Garvey writing fellow Griffin Olenek speaks with Julian Rebbe composer of sacred music at St. Thomas More, the Catholic chapel and center at Yale University. And associate publisher Megan Ritchie sits down with Griffin, along with intern Nicole Ann Lobo. They share their thoughts on the work of David Wojnarowicz, an artist whose work is now on exhibit at New York's Whitney Museum. This is the Commonweal Podcast. I'll talk a little bit about how we write our editorials. A number of us uh, pay attention to what's going on in the news. And this time around in late September, of course, it was the possible confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. And in particular, his hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee on September 27th, after allegations had arisen about a possible sexual assault against Christine Blasey Ford. We took the position that having seen Brett Kavanaugh's testimony before the committee, that he presented himself as basically unfit to serve on the Supreme Court. So that is the point of our editorial that we're running in the October 19th issue titled Injudicious, and you can read it on our website. Matthew Boudway is here. Of course, he's our senior editor. And Matt, you had brought up some interesting points about the way truthfulness was sort of being sacrificed or, or overlooked or being treated with indifference by a number of members of the Senate committee and perhaps the nominee himself. Yeah, well, it seemed to me pretty clear during the testimony and the questioning both of Dr. Blasey Ford and, and Brett Kavanaugh that a lot of the Republican senators really didn't want to know what happened. Of course, they couldn't say that, although I think it would have been refreshing if one of them had said that even if Kavanaugh did it, it didn't matter because it was so long ago or he had had so much to drink. I think that would have been closer to the truth. And so that made it all the harder for me, for others, I think, to take seriously, you know, these wild rants, uh, expressions of hollow indignation by people like Lindsey Graham, and also the expressions of respect for Dr. Ford, which seemed simply like, uh, well, they seemed peremptory, they seemed just a matter of protocol rather than a real attempt to grapple with a serious uh, and troubling charge. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the, the points that we all agreed upon when we set out to write this editorial was, in fact, that Christine Blasey Ford did come across as what some observers called incredibly credible. Our assistant editor, Regina Munch, was observing some of this with us, too, on September 27th. And Regina, you had, you had had some observations, I think, about just the way Christine uh, Blasey Ford was presenting herself that morning. Yes. One thing that I've been struck by is the way that people have been talking about how she seemed so credible and he seemed hysterical. <laughs> and I wonder what would have been the case had it been reversed, how this woman is remembering things from 35 years ago that have been terribly traumatic. Had she had a panic attack? Had she had not been able to keep her voice as steady as she had? 
would we have still called her credible even if all of the same words had been used and all of the same facts been the case? And if he had maintained more composure, how would he have come across? I think uh, one of the things that was really remarkable about Brett Kavanaugh's demeanor was the way he really quite frankly struck a partisan pose in his testimony. And, and I know Matt Sipman, our associate editor, had some observations and thoughts about that. When Kavanaugh began his opening statement, uh, at one point he called the whole two-week effort, meaning the whole two weeks from the time Dr. Ford had come forward or when we first were made aware of the letter she had given to a congressperson from California that made its way to Dianne Feinstein and then kind of leaked to the media. That whole two-week effort was, quote, a calculated and orchestrated political hit. He said that it was revenge on behalf of the Clintons, that it was funded by left-wing opposition groups. And while it's true that in all these confirmation hearings, there are groups on the left and the right that you know run ads and put money into messaging around it. The idea that Dr. Ford in particular came forward, again, he references the, the two-week effort, that she came forward for some political reason. I found that extremely distasteful. She came forward at some great cost to herself. She no longer can live in her home. Death threats, vile messages she and her family received. So hitting that note, an explicitly partisan note, I thought was not just, well, disgusting in regards to Dr. Ford, but also... As someone who uh, we all know the Supreme Court is a political institution, but there is a sense in which you should at least try to reserve for yourself some modicum of fairness, some sense that you would be able to, as a judge, put aside your partisanship to decide cases on the merits as best you're able. He seemed to totally throw that away and turn it really into, again, well, uh, emphasizing the politics of it and the partisanship of it. Which also struck me, frankly, as something right out of the Trump playbook where the truth doesn't matter. It matters who's making the allegations. And so you discredit kind of the messenger, which then it signals to the people on your side that you don't have to take this seriously because it's uh, the source shouldn't be trusted. And that, again, only serves the purpose of obfuscating the truth, which is which is a number of people have said can seem to be the heart of what at least the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee were interested in finding out. I agree. You know, use that phrase of uh, not taking things seriously. And I think that gets back to what I found to be sort of one of the most uh, resonant statements that Christine Blasey Ford made at the outset uh, when she described what she remembered most about the attack, the alleged attack in 1982. It was the laughter, she said, indelible in the hippocampus, the uproarious laughter of the two. And they're having fun at my expense. And sort of this just this overlapping of a lack of seriousness and this dismissal of real concerns and, and real allegations uh, was very troubling and certainly, I think, sort of informed how we decided we wanted to approach this editorial. We have a number of items on our cover of the October 19th issue, including an editorial on the uh, testimony of Brett Kavanaugh, a story from Eduardo Penalver about structural reform for the Supreme Court entitled More Justices, Shorter Tenures, and a story as well. Actually, it's a column from our managing editor, Catherine Lucky, her first column in Commonweal, and it's entitled Nasty Woman. So we're here at the one-year anniversary, as the cover of The Economist reminds us, 
Me Too one year on. Given what's going on in terms of the general revelations uh, related to the Me Too movement and Brett Kavanaugh's testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee, we thought that this would make a pretty good package uh, for our issue. And I'm here talking to Kate now about her piece, Nasty Woman, Female Rage Must Be Powerful, Not Petty. And before we talk, Kate, I think I'd just like to read one line from your column, which really, I think, for me, stuck out. And I think it'll stick out for our readers and give you maybe something to talk about. Women live in cultures, too. And I worry what this one might do to us. A very provocative line. So why don't you talk about your piece a little bit? Sure. So I wanted to write this column in response to a tendency that I noticed in myself that I wasn't particularly fond of, which has been a tendency to direct what I see as very righteous, politically motivated, and wholly appropriate and wholly in the spiritual sense, anger in unhelpful or self-righteous ways. In the conversations right now, uh, particularly about the testimony of Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, we've seen a lot of championing of women's anger. And I agree with the gist of that conversation. I think that in response to allegations of assault, in response to the hearings that we watched uh, last Thursday, and in response to Dr. Ford's testimony, anger is an entirely appropriate emotional response. The other side of the coin, though, is something that I notice, as I've said in myself, which is a tendency to be angry at men in sort of a generalized, diffuse way, not angry at the patriarchal culture that can create things like the pay gap or power relations at work that are skewed or sexual assault, but anger at men simply for being men, for having opinions, for speaking up. Uh, It's something I notice in conversations with male friends, with my husband, anything that they say around sensitive topics like Title IX or consent or agency or the relations between a boss and an employee or a professor and a student. I find it very difficult for myself to listen to those male voices. And to say that that's important is, again, not to say that any anger that I feel is unwarranted or unwanted. It's just to say that these two things can live together, that anger can become corrosive and petty and nasty in a bad way, just as it can be powerful, motivational, and bring about justice. So I wanted to draw a distinction between those different applications of anger. And when I say that I'm worried about what this culture might do to us, I mean exactly that. You do mention, of course, in this piece, and you referred to it just now, uh, sometimes even speaking to your husband or having these encounters with your husband. And I know that certainly a number of us who are married or who are in relationships sort of find ourselves in these moments, in any given moment, of ready to spar when we might not necessarily have felt this way a year ago. Is that sort of your kind of understanding of things, too, or your experience? Yeah. I mean, first of all, it's funny to have all of this be in the context of my husband because I've been married for (laughs) two months or so. So that in (laughs) itself is a new thing. And again, what's problematic about the anger for me in this particular situation is that I'm angry with someone who actually is in agreement with me on many of these concerns. So Mm -hmm. someone who is not a perfect person, as I am not, but who treats women with the utmost respect, his colleagues and his friends, and comes down on the same side as I do on you know issues of sex and gender. And so for me, that's part of my diagnosis that something about this anger was wrong, that the fact that I would interrupt him or say, oh, but did you see her face? That even if I agreed with him about those things, I'd find myself 
pushing back, which is not the kind of conversational partner I want to be, certainly not the kind of life partner that I want to be. But again, also, I think we'll just impede women's ability to be part of the conversation in a productive way. And I say that not because women should always be pretty or polite in their displays of anger, but because we all should have a level of civility and respect for each other when we speak. And we have to channel emotion that we feel into the right avenues. And that's that's probably not towards the people that we live and work with that agree with us or are doing their best or make mistakes and apologize. Where do we go from here, given what you've laid out in this column? I think that in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a lot of really great writing from women in The Times and in The Atlantic and Rebecca Traister's new book, Good and Mad. The direction I'd like to see the conversation going in is how that anger can be used appropriately and how that anger is not always a positive good. And I feel like the cultural commentary that I've seen on this is so caught up in the moment and in the power that women finally feel themselves to possess that it is treating anger only as that positive good. And I completely understand that. I also think that in order for the conversation to be heard by people on the other side and also to sort of preserve our own (laughs) selves on a spiritual level, Mm -hmm. our own souls, we have to nuance our emotions a little bit. Not to be biased, but I think women are quite good at that, so I'm pretty hopeful about it. Kate Bucky's column is Nasty Woman. Female rage must be powerful, not petty, and it's featured in our October 19th issue, but will be available on the website before that, so look for it. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. The Commonweal Podcast is supported in part by the generosity of Commonweal's associates. To become part of this giving tradition, Log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the donate link. In late September, the Trump administration announced it will lower the limit of refugees admitted to the United States from 45,000 to 30,000. This coming in a year that has already seen forced separation of families at the border, much more aggressive action by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and heightened rhetoric on issues like DACA. Commonweal contributing writer Paul Moses recently spoke with Donald Kerwin to get his thoughts on immigration and U.S. immigration policy. Kerwin is the director of the Center for Migration Studies. You know, I, I want to say, in, in writing and speaking about immigration, I often get the reaction from people, well, my people came here illegally. For many people, that's the end of the discussion. Uh, what would you say? The, the immigration laws were a lot different 100 years ago. Well, yeah, 100, 125 years ago. But what would you say to that that line of argument? It wasn't until the 1920s that there were legal immigration categories. I mean, there were grounds of exclusion before that. But basically, it was, yeah, it was more wide open at that point. But I, I'd say, I mean, I think I'd answer that in two ways. One is, there's this sense that the undocumented to the United States are both a burden and, and scoff laws. But if you just look at that population, almost 4 million of them have a relationship to a U.S. citizen or a lawful permanent resident that qualifies them for a family-based visa. And that's been determined by the federal government, but they're waiting in backlogs to obtain that visa to be able to secure it. There's about 20%, maybe 15 to 20% that are potentially eligible for permanent status, but can't afford it or don't know that they're eligible. 
you have high percentages that have been here more than 15 years and even more than 20 years. You have almost 4 million that are parents of U.S. citizens or lawful permanent residents and almost 3 million who were brought here you know, prior to the age of 14. So this doesn't, this looks like a very sympathetic population. It looks like us, you know, it looks like the country. Don, I wonder if I could ask you a bit about your own family saga, because it, it so often comes to uh, down to a personal issue for many people. My uh, relatives, ancestors on both sides were Irish Catholics. So all, all Irish. And we heard those stories about even from my grandparents about, you know, how they tried to keep their house, for example, immaculately clean because of the reputation of Irish and the libeling of Irish is dirty, you know, and not hardworking. And you're uh, a grandson of immigrants or a great grandson, a great grandson. Let me ask you a little bit about uh, policy for refugees. What do you think is appropriate policy uh, for dealing with refugees today? I mean, I think that the refugee program, it could clearly admit more refugees and should admit more refugees. And I think that that's, that's not an issue of international law, but it's, it's, a, it's a humanitarian issue. But there are lots of issues related to violations of international law and of domestic law. And I think one of the big ones that we've seen is at the U.S.-Mexico border, where People that seek admission and request and say that they they fear returning home or request political asylum oftentimes are not are not put in the process to seek political asylum, and that's a violation in, in, uh, of both domestic law and international law because sometimes these people are returned to places that are extraordinarily dangerous, like the Northern Triangle states in Central America. So, yeah, I think there are violations of international law, but there's certainly um, offenses against, you know, the humanitarian needs and the failure to recognize kind of the dignity and the absolute desperation of a lot of populations that we could we could be helping lives we could be saving that we're not. You've recommended in some of your publications legalizing many undocumented immigrants Along with that, taking steps to make sure we don't ever have such a large undocumented population again. I'm wondering what kind of steps could be taken that would keep us from having that large undocumented population. I know that the Donald Trump response would be, well, one of those steps is to build a wall. The wall is just not practical in lots of places along the border, and it kills the communities that are there. And there's a lot of border enforcement resources any which way. This was, not, this was not something that the Border Patrol was asking for before the Trump administration. So I think it's not, the wall is not the solution. I think the most important thing is actually aligning our legal immigration policies with our national interests. Those interests, you know, need to be defined in the way that they've traditionally been defined, you know, in terms of economic competitiveness, in terms of a value that we attach to the preservation and reunification of families and um, humanitarian values as well. Yeah. Although Obama, you know, was pretty strong on enforcement, there's just an edge in the Trump approach with all the rhetoric that comes along with it that I, I think sits poorly with kind of the Catholic worldview, not just specific teachings, but 
politically, Catholics tend to be in the more moderate in the United States. I'm just wondering if the kind of harshness of this approach, is it, is it affecting Catholic opinion, do you think, that in any significant way? I think it can't help but affect some people's opinions on immigrants, but it's also true that they've overreached in, in ways that are so um, inhumane and really so despicable, particularly on the separation of families, that it's created an opportunity for people to take kind of a second look. And Catholic teaching speaks very clearly to a different vision of immigrants and a different vision of our country than what we're seeing today. Donald Kerwin, thank you very much for being with us here at Commonweal. We wish you really the best in your work. Thank you very much. Commonweal is the leading independent Catholic journal of public affairs, religion, literature, and the arts. We offer a number of subscription options. Log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the subscribe link. By early 1943, it was increasingly clear that the Allies would win the Second World War. Around the same time, many Christian intellectuals on both sides of the Atlantic were thinking that the soon-to-be-victorious nations weren't culturally or morally prepared for their success. As Alan Jacobs writes in his latest book, The Year of Our Lord, 1943, Christian Humanism in an Age of Crisis, Thinkers and writers sought to articulate a sober and reflective critique of their own culture and to outline a plan for the moral and spiritual regeneration of their countries in the post-war world. Here, Jacobs speaks with Commonweal's senior editor, Matthew Boudway. Now, this is a relatively short book, but its scope is impressively wide. In one way, it's a kind of group intellectual biography. But in another way, it's, it's more of a general history of a few ideas during the period just before, during, and after the Second World War. And I wanted to begin by asking why you chose to address these ideas in the way you did, historically and in the context of five particular writers. The standard academic way of writing a book like this would be to do an introduction and then a chapter on Maritan and then a chapter on Eliot and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that, first of all, seemed really boring, boring for me as a writer, but also it seemed something that would miss the point. I thought the only way I could write about that convergence was to write a kind of braided narrative. What I wanted to do was to track a particular one of these figures to a particular point at which his or her ideas connected with the ideas of another figure in my little group. And then I would shift to that other figure. And then in that way, sort of leapfrog or hopscotch my way through the narrative to try to organize within a kind of a loose temporal structure, ideas that were coming to the fore and then receding, and then new ideas would come to the fore, and to try to show how that energy manifested itself in different thinkers. Yeah, one of the um, interesting divergences that your book examines is between two of these main characters, the two, the only two French figures, Jacques Maritain and Simone Veil. Maritain, of course, was a famous and very influential Catholic intellectual, and Vey was a, a kind of mystic who was drawn to Christianity but declined to enter the church. Can you tell us yeah. a little more about, well, the debate that went on indirectly between Maritain and Vey? 
Zartan and his and her then fiance Raisa, when they were university students in the first decade of the 20th century, were people of no particular religious belief, confronting despair and wondering whether there was any way out of it. They even went so far as to make a suicide pact if they did not find some answer, if they did not find some meaning. And it was when they attended the lectures of Henri Bergson that they found a path that led them ultimately to the Catholic Church. Simone Weil, when she came, of course, born into a Jewish family, though she did not understand for some time that she was a Jew, they were completely non-observant. And she was a, deeply attracted to the church. But the period that Maritain thought of as the high point in the history of Christian intellectual and spiritual life, she thought of as a period of what she called spiritual totalitarianism. And she never really got over that and had this profound identification with those who were outside the church, those who were persecuted. She wanted to be persecuted herself in many ways, and so refused to be baptized. She believed the things that the church taught, but she felt that the church had adopted an attitude of persecuting rather than welcoming and gently correcting the heretic, et cetera, et cetera. And so she knew perfectly well that she was going very strongly against a very powerful narrative of which Maritam was the most famous proponent. She doesn't refer to him by name very often, but in passage after passage after passage in her writing in the 1940s, you can tell that the unspoken, unacknowledged antagonist of, of her work is Maritain. Another major theme in your book is the opposition between technocracy and what the title calls Christian humanism. I mean, this may be the, the main theme of your book. And as you know, not all of your five thinkers were ready to celebrate humanism as such. Simone Weil in right. particular had serious doubts about it. But yeah. by the end of your book, it seems like you're talking more about Christian personalism than about humanism. And I'm wondering yeah. if there's an important difference between those two terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Barrett has the most important figure here, it seems to me, because he's the one who says that Christianity alone is able to articulate a true humanism, and that true humanism is personalism. Personalism is is the only legitimate and sort of fully orbed form of humanism. So most of these writers, Lewis is really the one exception. Lewis never used the word humanism. It had a very specific meaning to him as a historian of the 16th century and 16th century literature and culture. But all of them will use the term humanism at some time or another and use it with a degree of approbation as long as they can be careful to define what they specifically mean by it. So one of the themes that runs through all of these writers, again with the the exception of Lewis, is the distinction between a true and a false humanism. That what goes by the name of humanism in intellectual circles they say is not a true or actual humanism at all. It's a kind of an amputated humanism. And What all of these figures want to offer as a response to that is some version, I think it's fair to say, of what Maritain calls integral humanism, a humanism that is based on being in right relation to God as well as in right relation to your neighbor. 
And you end with an afterword where you introduce a, a sixth figure, a generation yeah. younger than these others whose career emerged after the war. And this is Jacques Ellul, a French Protestant. And he's most famous in this country probably for the technological society. You write about that and you yeah. write about how technocracy was the expression of a, of a whole worldview, which he called technique. And this was yeah. a worldview that was committed to two things above all, efficiency and objectivity. And it tended to annihilate everything that couldn't be reduced to one of those two terms. It had its own, it has its own method of formation, which you call psychotechnique. Can you, can you tell us what that term means and what its uh, visible manifestations are today? Right. So Elul's concept of psychotechnique is a bit elusive, uh, but I think what he essentially means is this, the process by which human beings are habituated to seeing technique, technology as the solution to their problems. It is, uh, Eliot puts, makes the point very similarly when he says that as technology, as society becomes more fully technological, its self-understanding becomes technological. It inframes itself in a technological way. That's when you have the reign of technique, as Elul calls it. Eliot's phrase for that is that it understands problems of life as problems of engineering. You get exactly the same point made in Michael Oakeshott's 1947 essay, Rationalism and Politics, where he says, you know, rationalism is the way of conceiving of politics as a problem-solving discipline. A much more recent articulation of the, the exact same point, just a few years ago, Evgeny Morozov's book, To Save Everything click here is a book about what he calls technological solutionism. And so getting back to Elul, Elul's notion of psychotechnique is the whole conjunction of ways by which our society habituates us to conceiving of our lives as a series of problems in need of engineering solutions, solutions which can be provided by technology. And that's, by the way, I think it's very relevant that probably Elul's second most famous book here or elsewhere is his book on propaganda. And propaganda is the, the whole collection of ways in which a particular ideology can be confirmed in the society as a whole. And so psychotechnique is something that we have all been so habituated into, according to Elul, that we are rarely aware that there is a different way to think about the world than as a series of problems in need of external solutions. Right. Elul's outlook in, in that particular book, The Technological Society, I think it's fair to describe them as pessimistic, but maybe maybe not quite despairing, because as you point out, as a believer, he did hold out some hope for a miraculous intervention, an unexpected solution that couldn't be couldn't be theoretically mapped out ahead of time. No, so, that's exactly right. But he was specific and intentional and explicit in saying that it was going to require a miraculous intervention, that this was something that Christians, there was no room for optimism, yeah. but there was room for hope. There were no human means by which he could foresee the reign of technique ending, but eschatological hope remains. So Elu always said that he that you should not read his 
more secular books in separation from his theological books, that his his more theological reflections provided the context within which these seemingly utterly pessimistic other books could be read. And I think that's that's a good point, but it's just not the way that it's worked out. Most people read only the secular books and therefore see Elul as someone who has no hope whatsoever, which is not true. Right. Well, I'm wondering what you think a miracle of that kind would look like. Is it is the kind of radical cultural regeneration your five thinkers hoped for possible without some kind of disaster that wipes the slate clean? I mean, the Second World War was uh, a huge disaster, of course, and yet right. it didn't cure us of uh, our technocratic mindset. So what would, if not that? You know, I don't know. I am, uh, you know, depend on which day of the week you talk to me, I can be, I can sound more hopeless or more hopeful. But right now, we are in a period in which there seems to be increasing frustration with the overreach of the big tech companies, especially the big media companies, and the anger being directed right now at Facebook and at Twitter, and people actually leaving Facebook and Twitter, not in vast numbers, but in sufficient numbers for it to be a source of enormous worry to both of those corporations, and therefore a source of uh, at least potential hope for me. It is, I think, probably going to be the case that people striving to extricate themselves from technocratic control will be in the minority, but the distinct minority. But I do think that they may become a large enough minority that they can have a kind of countercultural presence and can remind people that uh, we do not have to live in the way that Facebook and Twitter want us to live. So maybe that's too hopeful, but I really do see enough signs of what some people call the tech lash, the backlash against tech, this particular kind of technology anyway. I think it's a real thing, and I'm hoping that it accelerates in the coming years, but I don't know whether it will. Alan Jacobs' new book is titled The Year of Our Lord, 1943, Christian Humanism in an Age of Crisis. You can read David Sessions' review of the book in Commonwealth. Alan, thanks again for being with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Looking to connect with like-minded people to discuss the pressing issues at the intersection of faith and contemporary politics and culture? Check out our Commonweal local communities. Log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the communities link. Julian Ravi is a composer of sacred music at St. Thomas More, the Catholic chapel in Center at Yale University. He's the winner of the Vatican's 2016 Francesco Siciliani Prize for Sacred Music for his composition, Kyrie the musical setting of the penitential rite at the beginning of the Catholic Mass. Commonweal Assistant Editor and Garvey Writing Fellow Griffin Olenek recently sat down with Julian, their discussion touching on everything from the process of musical composition to the vocation of sacred art and the theology behind Julian's award-winning Kyrie. I'm wondering if you could give our listeners a brief introduction to sacred music itself. In your mind, what exactly is sacred music, and how do you think it's different from other kinds of music? 
you know, certainly I've heard, you know, sacred music being described as a ladder that we use to ascend toward heaven, toward God. I think of it maybe not in such a you know, concrete sense as that. So the music is but not the point itself. No. The music is pointing towards something else. It's, yeah, I guess my hope is that it would be a vehicle yeah. to allow the Holy Spirit, to allow God to point them, you know, toward God. Yeah, I think of a, a composition or a pop song we often talk about the genius of the person who composed it, right. or we talk about the beauty of the song itself. But what yes. you're saying is <laughs> sacred music is not is not about sacred music at all. Correct. It's pointing to God. Correct. Uh, it's Correct. going somewhere else. It yes. wants to... Art is powerful for the exact reason that it suggests things that we cannot simply state in black and white it does something more. And what that more is, is very difficult to pinpoint or perhaps even to explain. Mm. But I do think that the point of sacred art is to have that more mm. be an opening. It's almost like the, the job of the artist is to disappear or to get out of God's way. Yes. And that's part of my intentional process, the way I think about musical notes mm. is that my job is to listen to what they are suggesting. You know, to start off, I mean, I have to start with something, mm. but once there is some starting pattern of notes, mm. some you know, motif, that my job is to listen and try to intuit what they want to do, mm. and then to facilitate their unfolding. I'm reminded as you're speaking of Dante, there was this sense that artists were thought to be proud figures, that it was all about them, mm. about their ego, and especially about their talent. And mm -hmm. Dante, he's he's an egotistical guy. Mm -hmm. uh, he knows he's talented. And so he takes care to figure out for himself how can he be humble and an artist at the same time? And he has this line, he says, well, I don't really do anything. I'm more like a notary. I take dictation. Mm. I listen for what the spirit is trying to say to me. Yeah. And he says, I, I take note. I'm thinking about like, the connections between what you're saying sacred artists do and what was articulated by a sacred poet in the 14th century. He nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's exactly it. As you know, it's it's my job. I think it's the job of we liturgical musicians and you know sacred musicians, sacred artists in general, to listen to what the spirit wants. How do you go from the idea? for a piece of music or the idea for a composition mm -hmm. to its final uh, version. You know, for me, the process and the, the difficulty with it and the fact that the reason that it's, that it often feels like a torturous process mm -hmm. is because I will have a vision for a piece, but it is cloudy. It's a bit abstract. Mm. And my job as the composer mm. is to then crystallize this vision mm. so that it exists as concrete, discrete notes. Mm. 
that can be a torturous process because you know, if I had an initial vision that's going one way, but then I happen to find these patterns of notes that are interacting in a certain way that really is very appealing, but is diverging from my initial vision, mm. that's where I have a very difficult choice to make. Mm. And that choice is the choice that I face thousands of times in the process even of writing a short piece of music. So at first glance, the piece looks like a bit of a conundrum, mm. but it feels right. Well, I thought we could listen to one of your compositions, Kyrie, and then we'll talk about it afterwards. Great. just start off by what I hear in the piece or what's so moving to me about the piece mm-hmm. is it seems you have this whole drama of lost humanity coming to God, turning to God and being accepted. Mm-hmm. And you have the whole mm. emotional, spiritual, existential drama drawn out of three lines, right? Kyrie yeah. eleison, Christe eleison, so Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, mm-hmm. Lord have mercy. And that I link to short melodic lines that yes. also are you know, very limited. Yes, it's an incredibly limited piece, but it's not. I mean, it's limited in terms of the ingredients that go into it, but yeah. not what's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so much drama between the different elements of the piece that you start off and you're kind of like, is this even music? <laughs> I mean, like, it just sounds yeah. like somebody's warming up or it sounds, yeah. it's so, it's almost scary yes. to listen to, but mm-hmm. that's, <laughs> maybe the human condition is kind of scary. And yeah. the Kyrie comes at this, you know, this important moment in the mass where you have uh, the community gathering essentially to beg mercy from God, saying we're a community of sinners. We've gone astray. And so you have that reflected musically in the discordant voices. And yet they're not entirely discordant. There's something orderly or present. Or there's at least the potential for order there's the that, potential. They, that needs to be discovered. Yeah. And it, so anyway, could you say more about this piece, how it came into being? Mm-hmm. This is the piece that you won the Francesco Siciliani Prize. And the recording we just listened to was the one from Perugia, Italy. So this is quite a big deal, this piece. And I'm wondering if you could speak how it came about, how you composed it. 
what sorts of ideas were running through your head? It begins with these rising scales mm-hmm. in the in the ladies rising towards God mm. in an obsessive way. Yeah. And of course, yes, it is scary. Yeah. And the degree of repetition and obsession yes. does not seem mm. normal. No. Underneath that, the men have so the roles here between men and women are kind of switched. Here, the women have the repeating motifs, and the men have this counterpoint to that, which is descending instead of ascending, but the men are the ones who change. Mm -hmm. And if you listen closely, you'll hear that the patterns of the men's notes get darker and lower Mm. and get into territory with more flats, uh, A flats, G flats. You'll hear, you'll perceive that as a darkening of the quality of the sound. So, Julian, thank you so much for, for coming in today, for, for speaking on our podcast. Thank you. Uh, I'm wondering if you could just give our listeners a brief taste of the kinds of things that you're working on, uh, where your music is heading these days. Trying to you know find new avenues, new ways to sort of bring these melodies from the past, particularly of plain chant, mm. into uh, the present and combine them with all the possibilities that, you know, the present affords. Mm. Um, in addition to that, I'm also working on trying to explore new frontiers of interdisciplinary mm. sacred art. Mm the potential to actually create new forms of art mm. altogether informed by, inspired by the different media that we have at mm. our disposal today. And I don't even know, you know what forms th- those might take, but mm. the, that's what I'm really interested in thinking about and exploring. Mm. Well, we look forward to hearing the next compositions that you come up with. And thank you again so much. Have a favorite article you've read from a recent issue? Let us know and join the conversation online on Facebook at facebook.com slash Magazine, on Twitter at CommonwealMag, and on Instagram. Associate publisher Megan Ritchie sits down with Griffin Olenek along with intern Nicole Ann Lobo. They share their thoughts on the work of David Wojnarowicz, an artist whose work is now on exhibit at New York's Whitney Museum. I have an idea for an opening joke. Yes. It could be something like, so we're here to discuss the art of David... (laughs) (laughs) I think that we should have a two and a half minute segment on the pronunciation of his name. Wojnarowicz. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the recent David Wojnarowicz exhibition at the Whitney Museum that's set to close quite soon. My colleagues, Nicole Ann and Griffin Olenek, saw the show and had so much to say about it that I thought that I ought to make my way down to the meatpacking district myself. So, Nicole Ann, can you tell us a bit about why you <laughs> thought that you ought to get down to the Whitney? 
the thing that drew me to the Wonderovitz show was basically just the engagement mm. with history and how that's kind of a big trope that you can see across many postmodern and contemporary artists mm. who turn to the past to create new mechanisms of healing and collective memory in the face of trauma. That seems to be entirely, or at least a large part of what David Wojnarowicz does in his work, mm. which is incredibly diverse in the number of media that he bends across. This seems to be the central theme of looking to what has happened in the past to understanding our contemporary moment. Mm. Griffin, can you tell us a little bit about David Wojnarowicz's upbringing? Sure. We died young. He died at age 37. So he'd only actually been an artist for about 20 years. And before that, he was born, I think, in either New York City or the suburbs of New York City in New Jersey. And his childhood was incredibly troubled. He had an absent father, an abusive mother. He left home early, was not quite addicted to drugs, though did experiment heavily with drugs, had also been a sex worker in lower Manhattan, which is kind of where he found himself in that milieu. In the 1980s, he started producing art. They worked for about 20 years, had gone through a number of aesthetic styles, had made important contacts in the art world, especially with the photographer Peter Hujar. But then towards the end of his life, he gets deeply involved in activism, becomes you know an advocate for the gay rights movement. So it's really this, this interesting trajectory, this arc that that the Whitney show traces. He had a message that he wanted to communicate. The show does a great job of getting that out. It's been lauded by you know every publication we can think of. It's not been without no. controversy. You're right. There, <laughs> there has been a little bit of backlash to the way that the Whitney curated and displayed the specific show and that the organization ACT UP, which is an acronym for AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, actually staged a protest at the exhibition, suggesting that the Whitney failed to really connect this retrospective or this show, whatever you want to call it, to the current ongoing Mm -hmm. HIV AIDS epidemic. In a sense, it really seems to historicize it. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, like the Whitney, well, this, this will get into a later issue of what it means to really represent contemporary challenges in an institution space, because the Whitney as an institution mm-hmm. has a certain set of responsibilities mm-hmm. to really address the ongoing relevance of this crisis. It's almost like a, a responsibility that they had to kind of consult with ACT UP in the way that, the, in my opinion, I think that they should have had more of a, a sense of urgency to deal with ACT UP while curating the show. Yeah. So I'm wondering, Nicole, do you have a favorite piece of his from the show or a favorite section of the show? I absolutely do. I think that the work I liked in particular was a gelatin silver print called What is This Little Guy's Job in the World? And it's from 1990. It was created two years before Wojnarowicz would die, perhaps a little bit less than two years. It's a really striking image. The majority of the frame is taken up by a hand in which just the tiny space between the thumb and like the index finger lies a small tiny like frog i'm not even sure i think it is a frog but it's like yeah it's a frog i think yeah. it's yeah i don't think it's a composite of a photo i think no. it's just a photo of a frog no but it's like a tree frog like incredibly yeah. like it's like it's abs- you know tiny. the size of a thumbnail yeah, yeah absolutely tiny and it's looking over the edge of its holder's thumb like it's, it's like it wants to jump off but it can't yeah it's got a text in the upper right hand corner of the frame and Vodorovich himself was a he yeah. was a writer, as you mentioned, Nicole Land. Right. It reads, What is this little guy's job in the world? If this little guy dies, does the world know? Does the world feel this? Does something get displaced? If this little guy dies, does the world get a little lighter? Does the planet rotate a little faster? If this little guy dies, without his body to shift the currents of air, does the air flow perceptibly faster? What shifts if this little guy dies? Do people speak language a little bit differently? 
If this little guy dies, does some little kid somewhere wake up with a bad dream? Does an almost imperceptible link in the chain snap? Will civilization stumble? Oh, so it's quite moving. Yeah, I think the context of this being one of Wojnarowicz's last works, you know, created leading up to his death, I mean, the years leading up to his death, makes us realize that in a lot of his works, he was actually meditating on his own smallness, Mm. on this deep cognizance he had of his own humility and Mm. his own almost like irrelevance in the grand scheme of things, Mm -hmm. the great order of things. So even though he knew his death was imminent, it Mm. was like he was going to try to make as much noise as he could to try to get, he had this imperative to try to get his message out as much as he could before the death that he knew was looming in the Mm. distance, watching it happen to all of his friends Mm -hmm. was like so near. One thing that I actually read in the Guardian's review of the show that I found really interesting was that one of the curators actually wanted to include an essay by a Jesuit in the catalog And it's because he kind of situates Wojnarowicz in this tradition of what he calls secular Catholicism. And other artists that he places in that vein are like Nan Golden, right? Mm. Where they come from a, like a Catholic background and their work can be seen as attacking the church. But actually it comes from like a more genetic, like sort of empathetic understanding of what spirituality is. Mm. It's caring for like the outcast. It's caring for the least in society. And there are so many Bible verses you can use to back yeah. this up. It's the idea of like Christ taking on like the sins of the world. And to do that, he actually has to engage with it, not sort of look, look up from it from in, like a removed sense. Yeah. And he had such a sacramental worldview and that yeah, just comes yeah. through in the symbols that he chooses. But he kind of reminds me of uh, Kurt Cobain and the same way that Kurt Cobain was able to speak really eloquently of his own kind of inner demons and passions and desires with a kind of raw unstudied language. Yeah. That's the same way that Vonerovich uses photography. Well, one thing that I really liked is that he, you know, some of his most aesthetically beautiful works, I think, are some of his perhaps least effective. And I'm mm. thinking particularly of the flower series that oh, he did, yeah. which were so striking. They were very vibrant in color, and he included some text that he'd written in the corners that were painted over it. But really, the focal point was, like, were, like, close-up details of just, like, exotic, beautiful flowers. And the text that was included next to these pieces, the artist Zoe Leonard talks about Mm -hmm. how, you know, she was, uh, she felt really guilty that her works were so aesthetically beautiful. Whereas David Wojnarowicz, like at this point in his career, was so focused on activism that he was really working. Yeah. Um, his, his, his works had like more of a sense of urgency when he first viewed, viewed mm-hmm. them. And in response, he told her, beauty is what we're working for. You should never lose sight of beauty. Mm-hmm. And I think that really sums up what his message was. Like the confluence of beauty and tragedy, which is like kind of where he was working. And having that now memorialized 26 years after the artist died today. I don't know. There's a new, there's a new imperative. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by associate publisher Megan Ritchie and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. David Dalt did the editing. We'll be back soon with the next episode of the Commonweal Podcast. If you like what you've heard, we have extended versions of these segments either through our website or on your favorite podcast feed. This is Dominic Preziosi. Thanks for listening.